with all the stuff that's going on, all the craziness, all of the plum foolery, that's what I call it, amen. Just taking time out to remember that he's more than enough. The God is still on the throne. He's in control. I love the fact that nothing, no, but there are many things that surprise me and I go, what the world? But I don't believe God has ever said that throughout all of time and he never will. Why? Because he's God. He knows all, he sees all, and he does all. And yes, are there times when he's angry and he's frustrated? We see that in the scripture. But it's never God not knowing what he's going to do next and what the final outcome is going to be. And with that, we can have confidence and assurance. As the song said, he's more than enough. He's more than enough. Putting the emphasis on he's more than enough. Because the reality is I'm not more than enough. He's more than enough. And he makes up for all that I lack. Amen. And he makes up for all that you lack because our confidence is in the Lord and not in ourselves. Amen. So true praise and worship is boasting in the Lord and not in ourselves. Amen. We boast in Jesus. He's more than enough. And that's why we rely, depend, and cling to him. We look to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's more than enough. He's more than enough because I am an absolute hot mess, but he's more than enough. So we just praise the Lord on tonight. Amen. Glory be unto God and just getting that into our spirits because we must understand that we're in a time as believers where our faith is going to be challenged. Our faith is going to be challenged and we're looking at persecution. It's coming. Why? Because the enemy wants to rid the world of our God, who is the one and only true God. The only way to heaven is through the sun. There are not many paths and not many routes. There's one. And that's what we need to know. And that's why we gather here on the tour of truth. I love this. I don't know about you, but I do. Tour of truth. Because I want the truth. We got enough tour of lies. Get off of that. And let's get on the tour of truth. Amen. We want the truth because it's the only thing that will set us free. And it's the only thing that's going to keep us in this wave of deception that has been released on the earth. But again, God is more than enough. So don't think that God is not aware and it's not working according to his big plan, big plan. That's why we pray God give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We are not hopeless. We are hopeful because our hope is in the Lord. Amen. So welcome, welcome to the tour of truth, because that's what we're seeking. God's truth, not the world's truth, because there's a whole lot of truths, but they're lies. I'm just telling you, they're lies. There's only one truth, and it goes with what the Father has written. And he will never give us a dream. He will never give us a vision or prophetic word. Does not agree, agree and line up with the truth of his word. So welcome again to the truth of truth. You were selected by God to receive his truth. Amen. We are blessed. We are privileged and we are honored. So welcome, welcome. Glory be unto God. Not sure who was supposed to start tonight, but uh, anyway, God God, Lord, I believe it was you. Hallelujah. The Holy Spirit had plans. 
So thank you for that wonderful opening. Jed, if you're on with us, would you just say a quick prayer to start off out our evening? That was awesome, Sylvia. And we heard a new a new word. You heard it here first, plum foolery. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. So it's all in our lexicon now. So whenever anything gets out of whack, we're going to say cut out the, the plum foolery. <laughs> and what the world? What? <laughs> What the world. We love you, Pastor Sylvia. You are expanding. Our minds are blown. <laughs> oh, I love you all. I tell you, I look forward to every Monday. Why? Because I get to connect with other true believers that are hungry for the truth. I don't want any more lies. I had enough of them, Jed. So thank you. Thank you. Because I know when I connect with you, brother, I'm connecting the truth. Let's do it. That's right. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I got this psalm in, in, in my heart <clears throat> to focus us in as we pray. And let the word of the Lord run over our hearts tonight. This is out of Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord <clears throat> is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Thank you, Lord, that your voice is powerful. You're the God who thunders. You're the God of all glory. You're the God who sits enthroned as king. You're the God who sits over many waters. And we come tonight to hear from you. As we read through the scriptures, as we hear the stories, as we process truth, as Sylvia said, we, we get off the carousel of lies and we want to go on the tour of your truth. There's so much deception, and yet you sit enthroned over the earth and the heavens. There's none like you. And as water shapes all geography with rivers and gullies and uh, shorelines that get shaped because of the crashing waves and the waterfalls and all that natural power that changes the geography. We pray that your voice tonight would change the geography of our hearts and our minds, that your voice, as it speaks over us, would impact our hearts in a fresh way. Lord, only you can change the human heart for the good. Only you can impact uh, us for the truth. And so we want to have our minds renewed tonight by your word. And so whatever we're carrying in tonight, good, bad, and ugly, we just check all the baggage at the door and ask for you to meet with us, each one personally, 
to hear from you. Lord, we thank you for your servant, Krista. We just speak blessings over her and ask for your word to run swiftly through her, that you'd give her a focused mind. Uh, we know that she's been preparing and that she's going to share from the storehouse that you've built up in her heart over the years of studying your word. And so we just welcome your word through your vessel and through your servant, Krista. We bless her in Jesus' name as a messenger of truth, as a servant of Christ, as a sister in the body of Messiah. We thank you for the gift that she is. Uh, even here we are <clears throat> having a Zoom call on a website that you gave her the abilities and the skills and the gifts to create. And it's bringing people together to sit at your feet, Jesus. And so for that reason alone, we're grateful. But how much more have you done and, and blessed through Krista? And so we thank you for who she is. And we pray that you bless this time together in fellowship, that you'd open up your word and meaning and understanding and knowledge and wisdom would flow forth, that we would encounter you in a fresh way tonight. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of fellowship and this time together. And we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you so much for your kind words. Thank you for the prayers. Um, Father, I do. I don't have, I just know I don't have anything that's worthy to give, but Father, I just continue to submit myself to you because you are worthy and you are good and you are righteous and you are working through each one of us. So Lord, we do give you all the glory and just ask you to be with us tonight. Um, I am going to share my screen. So I have, um, I've been asking the Lord uh, over the last several weeks was we were kind of leading into this week that I knew I would be um, leading uh, what I was supposed to be speaking on because, you know, we've been in first Kings, we've been in Chronicles and Ecclesiastes. And so I just feel the Holy Spirit led me to really focus on Ecclesiastes. Um, so that's where we're going to begin. And I do believe that uh, the Holy Spirit does have a lot to say to us here. When you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, your first reaction, typically, at least mine, is what in the world is this book doing in the Bible? Really, you know, have you ever had that reaction yourself in reading some of the things that are stated? Because it seems to be putting this emphasis on fate rather than faith, on happiness rather than holiness, on this particular world rather than the next, and on material things rather than spiritual things. And some people actually find this book to be um, more depressing than inspiring, you know, because basically he starts out and he keeps going with life is useless. It's utterly useless, all useless. And that's not how God talks. So it doesn't fit. It really doesn't fit. The book of Ecclesiastes isn't actually quoted anywhere in the New Testament. So some people have even said that they don't think it should even be in the Bible, but we know that God uh, is holding all things together and he's the one who incorporated the, the books as they should be. And he is God and in control and sovereign. So he's got it there. But what is it doing in the word of God? And so I wanna just start out by saying that this was written by a man who was using his brain. You know, he was a thinker. And the basic questions, you know, always begin with why, uh, not how, you know, people ask, how can I be happy? Um, how can I make a living? How can I find guidance? 
But really, we should be asking, why should I make a living? Why should I need guidance? Because science, we know, answers a lot of the questions about how again and again, but it never uh, answers the question of why. And so this book is here to tell us why. Um, and that is much more important than how. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes was somebody who sat down and thought about life. You know, he was an older man and he was looking back over a lifetime that he'd spent searching for the answers, but a lifetime where he had actually failed to find them, the meaning and the purpose of life. And so he starts by saying, you know, I set out to find out what life is all about. Here's the big question, you know, which is being asked in the whole book, um, is life worth living? This is what he's asking. And I've heard it said, you know, in conversations that I've overheard, you know, something might go like, why are you working at that? You know, well, I'm, I'm working to get money. You know, well, why? Well, you've got to live, but why? And, you know, somebody might not have an answer to that. You know, they're just there working day after day to make a living and to live, maybe never asking why. You know, why just go to work and go on working? Why is it worth it? You know, so ultimately what we see that the question becomes as you begin to ask why is what will I have to show for it at the end? That's where this writer gets. And the question that's being asked in this book is what is it all about? You know, what's the meaning to life? And Jesus actually asked the same kind of questions um, in a different way. He says, what shall it profit a man when he gets to the end of his days and adds up the books, basically, is what he's saying in the scripture. What will it be? You know, is it going to be a profit or a loss? That's the question. You know, is life worth living? So Ecclesiastes is written by an old man, but it's addressed to people that are between the ages of about 15 to 25. And we'll have scripture that shows us that clearly. But he's this old man pleading with young people all the way through it. You know, find the answers at the beginning of your life is what he's saying. Don't wait until you get to my age. Think through these dead ends before you go down them. You know, find out what, you know, where life is meant uh, to lead before you discover that you wasted your years going up some cul-de-sac. You know, that's what his message ultimately means. And at the end of the book, he makes this impassioned plea to young people. He says, before your hair's gray, you know, like mine, before you're elderly or before you're senile is what he's getting at, get the answers to these questions. You know, and most people only start asking the right questions after they've discovered all the dead ends. So one of the things that I like about this writer is that he's absolutely honest. He tells us that he's tried this and he's tried that. He's tried everything. You know, he's tried all these things that he thought were the promise to life, but are going to give him some answers, but they ended up as dead ends. So we really need to praise God that there was someone like this writer um, in the Bible that was honest enough to write it down in his old age and say, you name it, and I've tried it, and I didn't find the meaning to life. So to put it in the nutshell, shall Ecclesiastes um, asks all the right questions, but it comes up with the wrong answers. I think the answer is actually fairly simple. He decided to look for the meaning of life within two very distinct limits. And once you put those limits on life, you condemn yourself to finding the wrong answer. First of all, he put a limit in space on his search. He looked for the meaning of life under the sun. 
That's a key phrase that's occurring 28 times in this short book of 12 chapters. And he said, I've tried everything under the sun. And that phrase, you know, is still actually even used today. He says, I've looked everywhere under the sun. And this is why he came up with the wrong answers. Because once you say under the sun, you've shut yourself off from the answer to your question as to the meaning to life. Because the phrase under the sun means everything that's within our observable world, everything that we can see at the ground level, everything in the sphere that we live and we move. So once you say, I'm going to go look for the meaning of life under the sun, you basically condemn yourself or confine yourself to saying that it's pointless, useless, and it's really just not worth living. You know, this man who's writing is being absolutely honest that those who live under the sun whose highest ambition is basically to get a suntan, are going to find out that it's a dead end and it's not what brings the meaning of life. So living under the sun, looking everywhere under the sun, doing anything under the sun, you're going to fail to find the purpose to life. So the second limitation that he imposed on his own search was um, this limitation on time. In other words, he was going to find it here somewhere in this observable universe but he also put this limit on time. And another key phrase that comes out again and again is he says, as long as I live. So this person has no concept of life, that life after death. Time and time again, he asked the question, who can tell me what will happen to me when I die? Nobody. There's no answer to that. Therefore, he says, you know, I've got to find the meaning of this life. So these two limits under the sun and while I live prevented him from ever coming up with the right answers. The book is saying loud and clear, and God wanted it in the Bible, that if you're a secular person, if you're a humanist, if you're bound in time and space by what you can observe and by how long you live, then you can only come at the end of the day to one conclusion. Life is useless. If you're honest with yourself, at the end of the day, you'll say that it's really been pointless and just a waste of time. So you could set out, as this man did, with high hopes, you know, that life would fulfill its promise. You know, life was full of promise when he started. You know, you built your castles in the air. He did. You did. Or are. And, and, but he finished up um, disillusioned with nothing eternal to show for it at the end of the day. So that's honesty for you. You know, you don't need to go outside of the Bible to find humanism and secularism portrayed in truly utter stark honesty. But there is one difference. He does say, pretty frankly, I don't know all the answers to the questions of life. I don't understand life. He's saying that throughout the book. He says, I can't tell you why it's worth living. But we know that he's not agnostic. He was a Jew. He knew there was a God. He uses the word God once in a while. You know, he says that God is above the sun, and he's sure that God must have the answers to these questions, but he's explaining that God's not answering, and he's not told him the secret, so he can't tell us. He believes, though, we see through the scriptures that he believes in the long run that it must be better to fear God, but he can't tell us why. He believes it must pay to be good, but he says that all the facts of life tell him that it doesn't. You know, throughout the book, there's this tension in this man, you know, that's basically stemming from his understanding of faith. You know, on the other hand, there was this feeling like he's trying to um, allude to there's something I don't know. He's not told me. I've had to search it out for myself and I've not found it. So I don't I just don't know. But we can look into this book and contrast 
Look at how Jesus takes many of the same questions and he answers them. We actually need to go through Ecclesiastes to find Jesus. We need to go through some kind of experience, you know, where we end up saying, you know, I just see it all as pointless. I can't find meaning. I can't find life. I'm not fulfilled. I'm not satisfied because that's life. And we need to find out that it actually is worthwhile and there is tremendous purpose and meaning to it. So I want to just say a little bit about the writer because um, the one thing I don't want to do right now is go into all that the scholars have to say about whether or not it's Solomon, King Solomon. His name never occurs in the book, but he does describe himself as the son of David and the king of Israel living in Jerusalem. Personally, I do believe that it is Solomon who wrote this book, and it makes sense because we also see how Solomon ended up. You know, the Bible says, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. You know, so we do know that God granted Solomon wisdom, but Solomon was not faithful to God. He was not walking with God. He was not privy to God's heart or God even speaking to him the whole time because of him serving other gods. So here is his message in doing things his own way with all of the wisdom. But starting out in verses 1 to 11, we see, um, you know, a pretty pessimistic beginning. He states, the conclusion at the start that he's come to this answer to the big question, is life worth living? Then he begins to tell us why he's come to that conclusion that life is useless. And the older versions of the Bible use the word vanity, but that word has really began to um, lose its meaning. You know, it's a word that means emptiness, um, hollow. It means uh, literally in the Hebrew, the word means wisp of breath. So that's a very good description of life, don't you think? You know, you begin to breathe, and then before you know it, you cease breathing. It's over. Life's just a breath here today and gone tomorrow. For some, life's like a merry-go-round. You know, they just get on. They have a great time while they're on. They go around and round, and then they get off just where they got on, and they've lost all their money. You know, for others, life isn't a merry-go-round, but maybe more of a treadmill. You know, you get on, and or you just start going and going. You just tread your way to the office and back. Generations come, basically, and generations go, and that's what we see through this book, but the world stays the same, and that's what he's explaining to us. You know, it's really just facing the facts, if we're honest, and looking at the reality of life, but there are some people who say, you know, well, I hope to leave this world, you know, a little better than I found it. I'm sure you've heard that. Maybe you've even said that, and that is the hope you know, that keeps many people going, that they want to know that when they get to the end of the road, that they'll have nothing to take from this world because naked they came into it and naked they're going to go out. But they hope to leave something for other people to follow behind. So um, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, do you think you're going to be remembered? And for how long? Do you think your little life's really going to matter much and make much difference in the world? And he's basically saying, it's a hard reality here, but he's saying, don't kid yourself. It's going to carry on without you. The world's going to go on just the same as if you'd never been on it. And it's really hard to hear that, but it's making people face facts. It's taking them to this logical conclusion of their own thinking. You know, if you have hopes that you're going to leave the world this much happier, better place than you found it, then you better think again. That's what Solomon's saying. It'll just 
have as much war, as much famine, if not more after you're gone than before you came. So if you think you're going to change the world, he says, think again. You know, that's not the meaning of life. Wars shift from one country to another. You know, divorces shift from one celebrity to another. But there's nothing new. The only real reason that we think it's new is because we don't remember that it happened previously. Isn't that true? History repeats itself. The Bible shows that you can go down path after path to the very end and still come to a place that says no entry. The problem is that most people don't think that far ahead. And Jesus criticized those kind of people. He taught that you're a fool if you only think in terms of what you can achieve in this life. You're a fool because this very night, he says, you'll be told that it's time to add up the accounts and you're going to have nothing to show for it. No profit. So the question that we have is, are we willing to see Ecclesiastes as a warning sign? Are we willing to listen to an old man speaking the truth about all the things that some young people are out there trying, you know, hoping that they're going to find real life? And the old man, he knows the solemn truth that the majority of people who find the answer to life, to the question, is life worth living? They find it in their youth. I know that was true for me. It's just harder to find it as we go on through life. And that's why he's writing to the young. That's why he teaches, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the years come when it's too late. Find God now and you'll find life now, he's saying. I went all the way and I couldn't get life related to God. The result was at the end of the life. He's saying my conclusion was that my life was pointless. I've been going in circles. Let's take a look at um, what Paul wrote in Romans 8. The whole universe has been subject to vanity, to futility. He says in Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. They're the same words, vanity and futility. The whole universe has been subject to this. Why? Because human beings are not fit to live. It means that God has built this into our universe as it is now, the whole thing going in circles. Everything is futile. Everything is vanity. Everything is pointless. It is God who did that to our universe. But it wasn't like that in the beginning. When God made the universe, it was going somewhere. It wasn't going in circles. But it's God who has built in this futility to everything. Why? Because we're not yet fit to travel the road that leads to him. So the whole creation is subject to futility. Waiting for what? Waiting for our redemption. Waiting for something to make us right. Waiting for us to be fit to live in the world. In, in the world, And then God will make the world fit to live in. You know, and he's, because he's told us he's making a new heaven and a new earth. The new heaven and the new earth are not going to be going in circles. So you've got to find purpose for yourself. And you find... Um, purpose by reaching above the sun, the physical sun, essentially, where he says, I'm looking for it under the sun on this earth. You find it by reaching beyond this life. And only when you reach out and forward in time beyond, you know, the limits that our scientific world has imposed on our thinking, it's only then that you're going to begin to grasp the truth. But the writer of this book did not take that position. He said that there must be a meaning. He believed, you know, there is a God who knows that meaning. He just hadn't been able to get through to him to find out. But the Christian is someone who can say, I have gotten through and I have discovered the answer. 
God did have a meaning and he did have a person purpose. And now I know it. That's why a Christian could never write the book of Ecclesiastes, not unless he wrote it before he became a Christian and was a very honest person who was willing to face those facts. So let's look at some of the things that Paul said. A Christian lives not below the sun. We see he says in Ephesians 2, 6, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So he's saying that a Christian lives in the heavenlies with Jesus and life is there um, and it's different than here. It's glorious. A Christian is actually in reality living above the sun, not under it. They're basking in something much better than sunshine. It's a glorious life to live in the heavenlies, you know, to be seated in heavenly places spiritually. That's more of a reality than our actual physical reality today, if you can comprehend that in your soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you're not a Christian, you won't understand a word of what I just said. But every Christian knows that according to Colossians, that our life is hid with Christ in God. So if you're risen with Christ, we're supposed to seek the things above where he is and you are, because that's where life is. We're not living a life that's bound by birth and death. We're already living eternal life that stretches through the grave and cannot be touched by death. So there's a dimension that's giving meaning and purpose. And every action of mine today and tomorrow is going to count. It's going to leave a mark and it will be remembered by God and by me. And that gives a whole new dimension to life. You know, I've gotten outside of that circle that everybody else in the world is on. And I'm now traveling in a line. Jesus not only said, you fool to a man who didn't think beyond the parameters of this world, but Jesus also said, this is life, to know you, God, and to know Jesus whom you sent. So if you read the teaching of Jesus, he relates life here and now to the world above the sun and the world beyond the grave. When you get those dimensions into your thinking, you found the answer that this man writing in Ecclesiastes never found. You say, you know, life, well, I never saw the point of it before while I was rushing around on the merry-go-round, but now that I'm off and I'm a pilgrim and I'm going somewhere, I know where I'm going and I know who's going with me. So the writer of Ecclesiastes picks up basically by knocking us down. He's saying, follow your own thinking to its logical limit until you've realized that life is pointless. Then you'll be ready to listen to another preacher called Jesus, who came to lift us above the sun and to give us life beyond the grave so that we could say life is useful. There is a point, and I can see it now. Solomon, he had been king of a pretty large country because Israel had never been so large of a power as it was under King David, Solomon's father. Solomon had inherited that kingdom, and they were at peace with their neighbors. He had inherited uh, the loyalty of an entire nation. So, you know, it was pretty, he just like walked right into a pretty good situation. He inherited all the wealth that his father had stored up for him. King David had spent the last years of his life collecting silver, gold, timber, and stone so that Solomon could uh, complete the temple. He could build the place up. But he was actually in the best possible position really to do whatever it was he wanted because he was at the top and he started from the top. He was in a position to go all the way down each of the paths of life that he was told lead to life. 
And he was going to try them all. This is what he tells us. He was going to try one after another to see if at the end of the road, he could say, I've really lived. And I can tell you the secret to life. God made life. This is just a illustration, like a jigsaw puzzle where some of the pieces don't fit and vital ones are actually missing. So this writer was right to say, God, why? Why did you make life like this? Because life is like this. You know, the New Testament um, gives an absolutely clear answer as to why God gave us life that was like a jigsaw where no pieces fit in and well, where some pieces don't fit and many of the pieces might be missing. You can't straighten what is crooked. This is in Ecclesiastes and you can't count what is not there. There are three main roads in life and just about um, everything that people do can be put under one of these headings. There is the road of enlightenment, which is knowledge, education, and learning. There's the road of enjoyment, where you seek basically any pleasure that you can. Um, thirdly, there's the road of enrich enrichment, where someone seeks to enrich themselves by acquiring things or by spending money in a certain way. Now, the last one, though, it actually can be unselfish if we become good stewards of what God has allowed us to have by using resources for godly purposes. But there is a concern in this book to help people understand how to live with money. Those who get it, you know, um, it's, it's wanting to help them come to terms with it so that they actually remain the master of it and never become the servant. You know, everyone you meet, though, is on one of these three roads. But Solomon had said, he made it clear that he was going to travel all three. And so he tells us that he went right down all three of them to the bitter end. And the first one he mentioned is the road of enlightenment. He said to himself to study wisdom and knowledge. You know, he had um, this great brain and he used that brain. God gave it to him and he studied life. And so he was a man who could analyze a situation and really penetrates the depths of it. Um, he, he studied hard. We, we read about that. He read books and he read people. He said that knowledge is the answer. Wisdom is the answer. Then he said that gradually he began to be disillusioned with knowledge. Solomon was one of the cleverest people who'd ever lived. And he said, I found myself lying awake at night, having my mind kept awake because I knew too much. My mind was so teased with the questions that I had not answered that I wanted to know more and more which really just shows us that knowledge can be as much of an addiction as drugs for some people. To live for knowledge does not bring life. It's stimulating, it's interesting while you do it, but when you get to the end of life, what can you do then You know, with all that knowledge? Where does it all go? It dies with you. The second road that he tried was the road of enjoyment. After exploring the avenue of the mind, he turned to his heart. From the intellectual, he turned to the emotional. From seeking enlightenment, he sought enjoyment and he lived it up. Women, he said, I, I had as many as I wanted. You know, we, we know he had 700 concubines, might even be more. I, I, um, but he tried every pleasure that he knew. He said, I gave wine to myself. It, it never says that I gave myself to wine. You know, some people do that. They, be, they actually become its slave, but he was exploring it and then he pulled back. But he said it didn't satisfy him. It, it never really brought him joy. And even laughter became, you know, something that he tried for entertainment. He tried comedy, he tried everything. And he saw how hollow it was to live for these things. So he comes to a conclusion, you know, enjoy what, you what you've earned 
uh, but don't expect too much from life. That was the most positive advice that he could give. And frankly, if we didn't have the New Testament, that would be the most positive advice that any of us could give. You know, that is like, don't kill yourself trying to get knowledge. Don't kill yourself trying to get pleasure. Don't kill yourself trying to get rich, but be content rather than covetous. You know, be content rather than clever and enjoy what God gives you. That's not bad advice for a start, but it doesn't take you the whole way. It doesn't make life worth living. It doesn't answer all the questions, but it is actually a good start. So a contented person with little we know is better than an ambitious person who's trying to get a lot. And what Solomon was saying here is get out of the rat race. You know, don't kill yourself for any of those things, except, you know, what God has given you and enjoy it. Remember that you can't decide whether you get to enjoy life. God decides that. So if he decides to give you something to enjoy, then enjoy it. This is what he's saying. Don't kill yourself to try to get more of it. That's very sensible advice based on his observation and experience under the sun. If the question is, God, why did you make life, you know, this impossible jigsaw? Then the answer is that God made it impossible for us to find meaning to life without him. That's why he did it. He put us in a world where nothing fits until he fits. You know, he put us in a hollow world that things are crooked and, and they can't get straight until he straightens it. And he did it for our benefit and for our sake so that we would seek him. St. Augustine famously said, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts can find no rest until they find rest in you. The prophet Isaiah said, why do you spend your money for that which does not satisfy? Yet we do. Did you notice the key word also in the readings in, Ecclesi in Ecclesiastes? It occurs also 28 times. The word is I. The subject of sentences um, and Ecclesi in Ecclesiastes is I or me. The real reason why these roads are dead at the end of them is really just simply put that you can't have self in the middle or self on the throne. And this is what was being said when we read through, um, he, you know, we're hearing I will be enlightened. I will enjoy myself. I will be enriched. I will enrich the world. I is a dead end. And that's one of the words of wisdom that we need to glean from Ecclesiastes. But Jesus again says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul? And he also said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things, he says, will be thrown in as a bonus. That's basically what he's saying. And that's the secret. There's nothing morally wrong with enlightenment, enjoyment, or enrichment. They only become wrong if they be, become to be, get the first place in your life. You know, God is supposed to have the first place. And all of those other things can come in second, third, or fourth. And they actually will fit in beautifully as long as he's in the first place. You know, but a Christian is not someone who denies themselves pleasure in life. You know, we don't want to get off balance either. A Christian is not someone who says, I'm not interested in education. You know, it's not someone who says, I'm not interested in making money. In other words, once we get this word into a true perspective, then we can enjoy it properly without becoming a slave of it. 
You know, we can take everything that God has given us and know that he has given us all things to freely enjoy. When we have it in the right perspective, we won't feel like death is going to rob us of the biggest thing in our life because death actually is going to be taking us into the presence of God who is preparing more things for you to enjoy. See, we have really got to get this life perspective. We need to rank things in the priority that they should have. The Lord God Almighty has to be at the center and he has to be on the throne. And then we can enjoy everything else that he gives. You don't live for the gifts. We live for the giver, but the gifts are okay to be enjoyed. You know, and that is a more positive philosophy. Solomon just says, enjoy what God gives because that's all he can say. The New Testament shows us that we can enjoy God and then enjoy everything else that he gives us. You know, we see something that Solomon couldn't see. Solomon said, I was king in Jerusalem, king of Israel, my kingdom. And that was all he could see. But once you've caught the wind of the Holy Spirit and been born again, then what do you see? What do you see? You see the kingdom of God. Now you have something worth working for. Now your own kingdom is not your own kingdom anymore. You know, now, you know, what is going to be left to others um, isn't going to be a reckless waste, but a kingdom that will last forever. That's what the, the whole perspective and the paradigm shifts because we then begin to see that your place in life um, is, is part of the kingdom, that you're a citizen of the kingdom, you know, and you have gifts to help build that kingdom up. And when you've been born again, you are able to see that you don't want to be the king anymore. You know, you are willing to get off the throne. You don't fantasize about those kind of things. Suppose I was the king. That's not even remotely in your thoughts because you know all glory is due to the rightful king. A Christian lives, you know, this life of the kingdom of God, and that makes life full of meaning and purpose, even while we're here right now on earth. So everything now that I'm doing is worthwhile. And it all starts when you feel this wind of God's spirit that you can't understand, you know, what is necessarily happening as Jesus talked about how the Holy Spirit comes, you know, the wind blows and Jesus just says, catch it. One of the most famous parts of Ecclesiastes talks about the times, that there's a time for this and there's a time for that. Well, do you know that God will not force us to go down um, with the times, but a person is wise who moves with the times that God sets. That's the message here. Someone is wise who, when God sends a summer, and this is just allegorical, you know, that they enjoy it to the fullest, you know, that they bask in God's goodness during that time. But when God sends a winter, that person also says, Lord, you know, I praise you for this because I trust that you're doing something with me. And a person is wise who says, you know, that when they've got perfect health, that they can enjoy that health, they, they appreciate it, and they do the things that good health allows them to do, and they praise God for it. But it's also wise that when sickness might come, that that same person can say, you know, God, what are you saying to me? You know, there are times and seasons in our lives that God sets. And finally, we move on to the purpose of life, and we see, again, the sheer honesty that's in Ecclesiastes. As the writer says, I've searched all my life. And I just can't see the point. I haven't found the thread is what he's saying. I haven't found the purpose. So I've had to come to terms with my life and all of its contrasts. And 
I've come to these conclusions. And so conclusion number one, he says that God gives us the good and the bad and that both are beautiful. Well, that's a big conclusion. You know, he realizes that God must be weaving a beautiful picture. But there's something profound that we see as we read the book of Ecclesiastes. The writer stays clearly only on one side of that tapestry. It's like he never seems to get around to the other side, but he seems to believe that the other side exists. That's the difference between the unbeliever and the believer facing life. Or the unbeliever says, you know, I'm just going to enjoy what I can. I'm going to grab what I can while I'm here. I'll eat, I'll drink, and I'll be merry. And the believer says, I'll enjoy what I can. And when God sends something good, I'll praise him because it's his gift. But I'll praise him for other things as well, because I believe that on his side of that tapestry, something beautiful is being formed. I'm trusting him. So the believer looks at the times when maybe you've been very sad. Maybe you've mourned, you know, times when what was built up has been torn down and they say, praise God. You know, I trust and I, I know that God is working all things together for my good and his glory. Doesn't that give us, you know, a different outlook on life than what we would read here through the book of Ecclesiastes? In the Old Testament, you can't actually see the picture of what God's doing. And that's why this book is essentially a pessimistic book. The writer said, you have set eternity in man's mind, and yet you prevented men from grasping the meaning of life. What he means is this. You've given us a desire to make, a, a, you know, to understand the experiences, but you never let us come around and look at it from your side. You've given us this desire to know what it all sums up to total and look like, and just not to experience all of the parts because you never tell us. You don't grant us this understanding is what he's saying to, to see the whole picture. So the writer comes to this conclusion that there are only two things in life that you need. First, he says you need to have fun and enjoy the good things that God gives. And second, you need to fear the God who is weaving, you know, this beautiful picture for himself. You need to fear God is what he says. And when we turn to Ephesians chapter one, we see that in all his wisdom and insight, God did what he had purposed and made known to us the secret plan that he had already decided to complete by the means of Christ. This plan, which God will complete when the time is right, is to bring all creation together, everything in heaven and on earth, with Christ Jesus as the head. So we've been told the secret. I now know what God is doing with my life. I now know why he sets the seasons. Everything has got to be summed up in Jesus Christ, and that's his purpose. Whatever experiences come to you, whatever times that are set for you, you can say, my times are in your hands. It's true that, you know, we only have one life to live, which we only get to live once, but it's long enough to do everything that God wants you to do. He has set the times and it's too short to waste any of it. But we don't need to be fatalists either. We need faith. Faith to say, my times are in your hands, God. Whatever this week brings, I'm going to call it beautiful because you've said it. The writer sees people hurrying to the temple and he wants to say, stop. You know, and so he's basically trying to say, you know, watch your step when you go to the temple. He's pointing out, I've been up there and I've seen disillusionment. So what did he see? Two things. First of all, he saw ritual practices without any real meaning. Secondly, he heard lots of rash promises that meant nothing. So he might have thought, you know, he would only get in to see that sort of thing in politics, but he found it in religion too. 
when he got to the temple, he found people offering sacrifices to God that were costly sacrifices. But when he looked into their hearts, he realized, you know, that the people were going through the motions of religion without the morality. They were going through the ritual without the righteousness. They were patronizing God. They were more concerned with what they did in the temple than with what God told them to do outside of it. And he was disgusted by it. One of the main dangers of religious practice is precisely that you go through the motions without asking God what he's saying. You know, Ecclesiastes is warning us to be careful when you go to the house of God. Have you listened to what God wanted to say to you? The fourth thing mentioned in this passage where I'm referencing now is the difficulty in appreciating wealth. Some people have got everything that money can buy and nothing that it can't. And Job, he very simply said, the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You can't praise the Lord for the second thing unless you praise him for the first thing. It's only those who see everything that they receive as a gift of God who can say, blessed be the name of the Lord when he takes it back. It was his to do what he wants with. That's the reality that we need to keep in the forefront of our mind. You know, these, these things that we have, every good thing, the Bible said, is a gift from the Lord. He is the father of lights. He's the one that passes down blessings to us. And, you know, in seasons, that might change. There are purposes of why he's given us what he's given us. But if he takes it away, then hallelujah, that I'd had it for any period of time. You know, and if he takes it away, that's his business. Job had this big argument with his wife when they basically went bankrupt. And, you know, his wife told him to curse God and die. Of course, you know, she was heartbroken because she'd lost her family. They'd lost everything. But the difference in their attitudes were remarkable. The wife never said, you know, the Lord gave. So she couldn't bless the Lord for taking away, taking it away. She saw what they'd worked for as things that maybe they'd earned by the sweat of their brow, essentially. You know, Job had built the business, um, had the family working the farm. You know, it was theirs. And God had taken it away. So Job tells his wife to be quiet. And he tells her that the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God had loaned it to them, you know, for that long. Bless him for that. That is Ecclesiastes' advice on how to eat and drink and to enjoy what you have while you have it without becoming enslaved to it. So that if it were taken from you, you know, that you would feel like the bottom dropped out of your life. And I think there's something very profound here. You can apply it not only to your money, you can apply it to your children. You can. You can apply it to your relationships. You can apply it to your career. You can apply it to everything that God gives you and say, God, thank you for it. I'll enjoy it while I have it. But if you take it from me tomorrow, I'll say, blessed be the name of the Lord for giving it to me yesterday. What a different attitude that is. You know, but the man who says, I got my money. You know, it wasn't God's gift. It was my right. I earned it. That person has not come to terms with God's wealth. And the fifth point about wealth is the dilemma in assessing it. Jesus said more about money than about any other subject. Did you realize that? If you go through the Bible and underline every verse of Jesus's teaching that touches on money, you're going to find that he said more about that than he did about prayer, heaven, forgiveness, or any other spiritual subject. Money is all the way through his teachings because it's such a big factor in our lives. You know, he said that it's hard to be rich. Simon Peter, who was always sort of opening his mouth and sometimes putting his foot into it, he, he would come right out with his thoughts. You know, he wanted, so he asked Jesus, you know, he wanted to know, 
if um, people with money can't get to heaven? He's like, well, then who can? So Jesus had to tell him that a man's life doesn't consist um, in the abundance of their possessions. So we should never measure the importance of a life by how much money somebody's made in their life, because that's not a measurement. In Luke 16, Jesus told two stories. The first story was about a rich, poor man, and the second was about a poor, rich man. So most Christians actually have a real problem with the first story. It's about a dishonest man who was going to lose his job, and he was given a few days to get the accounts ready to be audited. But he knew that the books weren't accurate. So, you know, he's got his days knowing that they're numbered, um, that he was ultimately going to be fired. So what did he do? He messed around even more with the books and he got people to write IOUs, which he held in their handwriting. He got them to write them down and then they were grateful to them because he was telling them that they really only needed to pay half of the debt that they actually owed. So, of course, you know, they were excited and appreciated what he was doing for them. Well, the master in the story commends the unjust steward for acting shrewdly. Why was he shrewd? Because he realized that what matters in life is relationships, not money. He realized that what you need in the end is friends, not money. He was prepared even to manipulate the accounts to get some friends so that when he had nothing left, there would be people who would be grateful to him and help him. You know, Jesus is not commending fraud when, when we see this commended in the Bible. And some people really get confused here. He's not telling you to go cook the books and that's okay. What we learn is that we're able to give away and use our money in the same way is essentially the lesson from this, to use what God gives you to help you obtain friends in the future so that when you get to heaven, there'll be people that will say, I am so glad to meet you because we can't take our money with us to heaven, but we can send some of it in advance in the form of friends. You can use the mammon of even unrighteousness sometimes to prepare a circle of friends who will welcome you into heaven. In fact, Jesus's advice is not to lay it up on earth, you know, where we're bound to have depreciation because moth and rust are going to consume it and thieves break through and steal. We can't even be sure of keeping it, but we're supposed to lay our treasure up in heaven. So that means to put our money where our heart is, because the Bible tells us that where your money is there, your heart will be also. So he taught people to invest wisely in this way. So think of a person who invests what God gives them and has people waiting in heaven ready to say, I've been longing to meet you because the money that you gave bought a Bible, you know, that brought me to the Lord. The money you spent sent a missionary to tell me about the love of Jesus. That's the right attitude that we're supposed to have with our money. Yes, it's a gift of God to be enjoyed, but also to be used for eternal investments. And it is literally true that Jesus tells you how to keep it beyond the grave. And this is how, how to spend it so that you don't end up a pauper in eternity. And another limitation that we see in Ecclesiastes is this. And here's the passage um, that I'm sure many of you have wondered, why did God even put this in the Bible? It says, don't be too good or too wise. Why kill yourself? Don't be too wicked or too foolish either. Why die before you have to? Avoid both extremes. And if you're religious, it's basically saying you'll be successful anyway. Well, what do you think about that? You know, there's a lot of people who will jump on parts of this text and say, well, that's how I live. It's in the book. It's in the word of God. And then they shut their eyes to everything else that the book says, because the book also says, be holy for I am holy and be perfect for I am perfect. Your heavenly father is perfect. But there are people who ignore all that 
and then we'll take hold of this one part of the passage. You know, this, this is the attitude of an ordinary person who hasn't yet realized that life goes beyond the grave. This is the natural, normal human wisdom that only sees this life, you know, and the reason why he gives this rather extraordinary advice is very sound. He means this. He's saying, as I observe life, I can see that it doesn't pay to be good. I've, he's essentially saying, I've seen a person who's really tried so hard to be good and then they die young and maybe they died painfully. I've seen a man who was bad and he lived on and he died a peaceful death in his old age. So it honestly isn't worth trying to be good. This is what he's basically summing up here. So don't kill yourself by trying to be good because you might die anyway. If the furthest you can see is the grave, then this advice is very sensible. And I can understand an ordinary person, you know, out in the street saying, that's my philosophy. Try to be good, but not too good. Don't go to extremes. Don't get religious mania. Don't be too bad because you're likely to get in trouble with the police. Just try to go down the middle and, you know, a little space of religion here and there to keep you out of trouble. But you'll be successful anyway. That is worldly wisdom. But as soon as you look beyond the grave, we realize that that is nonsense. It is. You know, you see that the writer is working within these parameters. He's working within the limits of his observation under the sun before the grave. For who knows what will happen afterwards, he says. Well, I'll tell you who knows. God knows what will happen afterwards. And God said that if you're going to get through afterwards, then the standard is perfection. You'll never get to heaven. And let me just say too, for the caveat of saying perfection, we only can be perfected in Christ Jesus. I can only put on his righteousness. Uh, it's not a gospel of works, but our works are certainly the fruit of our salvation. It proves that it's genuine. But you'll never get to heaven on the advice of this passage. The writer is giving advice for those who are simply coping with this life. And it's reasonable advice. But as soon as life beyond the graves opens up, this advice becomes obsolete. It's not good wisdom. It's foolishness. And this was his limitation. The issue is not just what will I be like in old age, but what will I be like after I die if I pursue a certain course now? That's the long-term perspective, and that's real wisdom. Real wisdom is not just considering my old age and providing for it. It's considering my life beyond old age and how I'm preparing for it. That was the perspective that Jesus always took. So again, where do we find wisdom? Let's close in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. I know it's small on your screen, but if you have your Bible, you can open it. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw, saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks, Gentiles, who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. 
But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. That passage is where you find wisdom. And poor Ecclesiastes was groping after wisdom. He knew that it was the secret to life. There's only one place that we're ever going to find real wisdom, and it's at the foot of the cross, and that's where life begins to make sense. It's where the real meaning begins to penetrate our former darkened minds. And how wise of God to make it this way? You know, if he had made it possible for men in their own wisdom to find him, then philosophers would be the first ones into heaven. But doing it this way, I can get in. I think that's pretty awesome. When we look at the teachings of Jesus, we find that he said many of the things that are said in Ecclesiastes, but his observation on life came to a totally different conclusion. It's when people come to know Jesus, which is something that the writer of Ecclesiastes was not in a position to do yet. It's then that we gain the confidence to face our death. We gain certain assurances, which make us people not with this long list of things we're not sure about, but with a long list of things that we are sure about by faith. And at last, we listen to Jesus and understand why God does not punish sin immediately, why life seems to be so immoral, things that Solomon struggled with. He taught us, you know, that it's really actually quite simple because the Lord tells us in the New Testament that God's letting the wheat and the tares grow up together. He's not pulling the tares out, you know, because if he did, um, he'd pull up the, the wheat with them. So he's letting them both grow together. But one day he's going to separate the wheat from the tares and gather the wheat into his barns and the tares will be burned. Right now to everybody in the world, it seems like God's letting evil people get away with it, but they should be absolutely sure of this because Jesus was absolutely sure of it. And it comes out in parable after parable, whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Story after story, Jesus told um, wheat of the tares parables or the wise and foolish virgins that wait together or the good and bad fish that are caught in the net together. It's all mixed up together right now. But one day there will be a separation. One day God will act and how wise he is to be patient with us. We should see that, you know, as a the injustice of that, that what seems like an apparent injustice in our world, we should see it at this as this token of God's patience with us. And letting good and evil grow together that some of us might actually be gathered into the barn that otherwise might not have been had he not been patient. What mercy, you know, do we see in that from the Lord? He is so good. So in Christ Jesus, I become sure of judgment. I become sure um, that this is a moral universe. 
And there are many questions that people ask that we actually can't give the answers to. You know, whoever may it might be, the, the, we can't figure all this out. We don't have all the answers. But the one thing that we can know, and the one thing that brings all the assurances that I need, is that I know the one in whom I have believed. And Ecclesiastes was not sure of anything except, you know, he when he was enjoying himself. That's what we see. But when you are sure of Jesus, you are sure of everything worth having. You're sure that judgment's coming. You're sure that your sins can be forgiven. You're sure that heaven is being prepared for you. You're sure of Jesus, not of yourself, but you are sure of him. You know, so we're thankful that Ecclesiastes reminds us of how little we can be sure of in this world. But we thank the Lord, you know, that Jesus is making us sure of the next world. That we can say with Paul that I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depths, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And if you're sure of that, you can really sit lightly with the rest of all of this. You really can. If you're sure of that, you won't expect too much from your husband or your wife because you're going to be able to see them as just a, a real person that the Lord loves. And if you're sure of this, you won't be afraid of authorities. You really won't. Because as with Jesus, when he was in front of Pontius Pilate, you're going to also be able to say to the highest authority in our land, you know, you would have no power over me unless it were given to you from above. If you're sure of Jesus, you are sure that crime does not pay and sin does not pay and that the accounts will be settled. These are the things that are being questioned in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so we're on our final slide here. The writer of Ecclesiastes knew that people don't obey unless they have a strong enough motivation. And that, you know, there is this thing in our nature that doesn't like to be obedient to anybody else. There is something in us that doesn't like to bow down to anyone. And we really want to say we're going to do it on our own. So what motive would be strong enough to make people do what God tells them? Well, the writer can think of, you know, one thing that's big enough, and that's fear. When people are afraid, they act. And if only people were afraid enough of God, they would do what he told them, and they would discover the meaning of life. Now, that was his theory, and it, it really doesn't work because human nature doesn't fear God or obey him. So why don't we fear God? Well, it's because he doesn't actually settle the accounts right now. He doesn't settle up every Friday. He doesn't punish us fully right now in this world. And because it's not clear that God is our judge if you observe life in this world only. So Ecclesiastes collapses in this last verse. You know, he tells us God is going to judge everything we do, um, even things done in secret. But who is afraid of this big God and therefore who's obeying him? You know, the answer is that human nature does not fear or obey by nature. So why is it that Ecclesiastes never really, really got the answer? He kind of got it. He almost got it. He got the beginning. Fear God and obey him. That's the most incredible starting point. It's the beginning of wisdom. The beginning. Put your foot there, and then you have your foot on the path that leads in the right direction. And the great news that we get from the New Testament and it's what makes a complete Bible, is that in Jesus Christ, I've got someone who was above the sun and who comes to me from beyond the grave and says, I am the life. He reveals that the first thing that we need, if we're going to discover, 
you know, a new relationship with God. You know, Ecclesiastes saw that God is your creator, your shepherd, your judge. But Jesus came from above and beyond the grave and revealed that God is your father. And life begins with that relationship. There's a stronger motive now. The new relationship has given us this new motive. The motive is love. Love God and keep his commandments. And you know, there's only one motive that's stronger than fear. I want you to think about something. Think about a house being on fire and there's a mother and father that are running away. They're afraid of the fire. Their house is burning. And then suddenly they turn around and they run back in. What motive has overcome their fear of being burned alive? The motive of love sent them back into that situation. The love for somebody inside that house has overcome their fear. Love is the fulfilling of the law. But there's something else that's going to be needed, and it's that I'm going to need a new nature, not just a new relationship, not just a new motive. I needed a new nature because the old me is absolutely incapable of ever keeping the commandments of God. Jesus came from above and said, I am the life. And when I was born again, a new motive was born, the motive of love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I was given a new nature, not the old one that didn't like to be told what to do, but a new nature that could respond to God's will. I want to now, you know, for Christians, Ecclesiastes sort of fades into the background now because we no longer need to try to discover for ourselves what life's all about. We no longer need to try to discover from other people's experiences in life. You know, those things are helpful. But now we have Jesus. There are things because we have Jesus that mean there are things in our life that will have to actually go. Jesus was so honest with people that he met. He didn't say that you could add him to everything else. No, he made it clear that some things have to go to make room for him. And if we want to do everything that the world offers, which is what we see this writer of Ecclesiastes was doing, we won't be able to fit Jesus in. But if we can fit him in, we can have eternal life. And Jesus didn't come to spoil our fun. He came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. So with that, I'm going to stop sharing my screen. And I just want to ask, you know, the question about all that's been shared, um, how the Lord has moved on your heart and what he might have spoken to you through his word as we've gone through, you know, the realities of um, real life and true wisdom. And it really just uh, confirmed again and again in reference to what you were saying is that, you know, thanking God, because remembering that everything came from God and he literally, and this is how I try to live my life every day. He is the only one that has a right to choose what to do with that which is his. And that's not just um, my possessions, material things. It's also me. And so every day I say, Lord, you have a right to choose what you're going to do with me. My life is not my own. And with my loved ones, with families and friends, I remember in 2021, uh, a, a spiritual daughter, Nora from Uganda, died suddenly and immediately. And, you know, everyone was literally in shock and they were in mourning and all of that. And as I was processing it and I was talking to the 
the Lord. And I think it was probably several weeks went by and, and it wasn't that I was in a deep mourning or grieving or anything, though I did, but I was searching and I was asking the Lord and he was bringing revelation. And I remember at a point that he said this to me, he said, you never thanked me for putting Nora in your life and the times that you had with her. And I said, what? And then I realized it. And I know that life began to flow fully again when I began to thank him for meeting her and thanking him for placing her in my life and thanking him for the fact that I knew where she was and that she was with him. And so when you were sharing that, that is that profound truth that everything to include ourselves and our loved ones, it's a gift from God. We belong to him and we must remember that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Well, I, I love Ecclesiastes as wisdom literature for one primary reason. Uh, I think of all of the vessels that God could have written this through, he chose to write it through Solomon, who is the wisest, well, most wealthy, uh, most accomplished person, basically, that's ever lived. You know, if you were to, uh, I think, what's the right word, Com compute his, his finances that he had under his power and his reign to today's, uh, nobody would compare to the amount of wealth that Solomon had. And you know, he basically, I, th I think that's that Ecclesiastes is the um, inoculation against the pleasures of this world, um, taking root in our hearts, that he basically is saying, guys, I've done everything. I've chased everything that the world is telling me to chase. I've chased all the pleasure. I've chased all the wisdom. I've chased everything I could possibly chase. And I've come to this conclusion. You, you need to seek God. You know, and so in that sense, I think it's a great piece of wisdom philosophy um, to ultimately, and I love what you said, Krista, you know, Jesus says the same thing. What does it profit you to gain the whole world, but lose your soul? And ultimately, it's an existential question that every human being is faced with. But because of all of the golden uh, baubles that the world holds out that distract us and want to compete for the affections of our heart and our time and our energy. You know, Jesus doesn't deny the fact that you're pursuing treasure. He just says the wisest thing possible, make sure that your treasure is going to be, it's going to last. Invest in treasure in heaven. And here's how you do that, um, right? You know, because he knows this pull. And Solomon knew that pull. And so I think it's this, and he calls himself the teacher. And so I think it, it, it really is the if you have any desire for wisdom at all, to sit down and realize who this man was and the course of, and the trajectory of his life, we live in this illusion of a world where like the world will look at us and say, well, look at all the celebrities, go after all of their, what they want, as if they have pure happiness. And then you look at their lives and they're not happy. You know what, they're not happy, but we are conditioned, we're over-advertised at birth to pursue materialism and to, to worship mammon. And Ecclesiastes is like, don't fall for it. Don't. Every, you know, it, 
everything that you're sewing up, working so hard for, it's going to be spent by somebody else. It's going to be ash in a second. When Jesus comes back, the wealth of the world is dust. It is, it's empty. It's ash. But this kind of, when you, when you let it affect your heart, it inoculates you against the poison of mammon. And, and the illusion of pleasure in this world actually satisfying your soul apart from Jesus. He's the ultimate satisfaction. And so I think Ecclesiastes should push us all to, whoa, if Solomon is saying this and it's all vanity, it's all meaningless, I've got to go to God to find out what actually matters and what, what is, what should I point my heart to? And that's exactly why I think this book is in the Bible is that it, it, it pops all the bubbles. It bursts all the balloons so that we, we really examine life. What is the meaning of life? And I think you're so right, Krista. That question, Solomon is before Christ and did not have the revelation that we have now. To kind of finish the, we, we can drive that point home with clarity on Jesus is the ultimate pleasure. He's the ultimate beauty. He's the ultimate purpose. And, you know, I think there's so much of the human soul that, that is, is uh, susceptible to the cares and the pleasures of this life that I think that's really, when I look at, think about America, that's what does Jesus say about the, the four types of soil? The, the, there's, there's seed that falls on the ground with thorns and it's the cares of this world, the pleasures of its life that choke out the growth. And I think that's a perfect description of America. We have a church on every corner, but our power and our impact is, I mean, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but we have to really look at that. And I think, you know, if we're wise, we're going to look at what Jesus is saying right there. Like, hey, these, these distractions and these, these desires that are, are in your soul are pulling you away from the one superior pleasure. And I think for that reason, it, it, it's a good thing that the Lord pops all of our bubbles and bursts our, all our balloons through Ecclesiastes. It's not a pick you up, but it's a let's get real and have a conversation about what really matters. And and uh, in listening to a, a wise man who reached the end of all things and realized it's really not worth it. God is the only thing that that matters in the end. Amen. So true. I would rather have the truth as much as it might hurt. I would just rather have the truth, you know, and um, hear from the one who created me, you, all of us and knows all things. I mean, we might not like it, but we are not God. We are the created. He's the creator. So let's hear what he has to say. Praise the Lord. Deb. This past week, uh, Pat Robertson passed away. He's very well known. <laughs> and uh, some of his family was talking about a prayer that they really remembered him praying, what they remembered him for, and that he would ask for the Lord to help him with what he, he needed to do and accomplish, but that he was very concerned about, Lord, I want to be a part of your plan. That was the way he started his day. I want to be used in your plan. What is your plan? And, and a lot of these uh, remembrances that have been going on just really talk about where he did invest, how he invested, and it was kingdom work. And I find myself thinking about that. And it, when I get up in the morning, it was the first thing they said that he, he prayed each day was, Lord, I want to be a part of your plan. What's your plan today? What are we going to do today? So just kind of that 
reverse thinking about how we, you know, like we talked about I, you talk about I and me and where we store up our treasures, but he made it about God. He made it about what the Lord wanted him to do and how he was to proceed. And I think his life is a pretty good uh, example. The things that he's being remembered for uh, is a pretty good example of where he put his treasures and, and, and the legacy, the people and the family and the people that, like you said, uh, you know, where did you, that because of you, I had a Bible, because of you, I had a meal, because of you, I had, you know, what he did for the least of these. So that's kind of what's been resonating through this discussion for me. Praise the Lord. You know, it is where we need to spend some time like meditating upon each day. Lord, what, what do you want from me today? You know, what, how can I serve the kingdom today? You know, here I am, Lord, use me. You know, we need to be willing and mindful of these things. Sometimes I think there's so much noise going on in the world around us. And it's not wrong to have things we have to do for our families or business or what have you, but we've got to make him still the priority to sit and hear from him. Um, Terrence. Praise the Lord, saints. Um, and I thank God today for uh, the lesson that I, I have received today, because I must say um, through this teaching, the Lord has really unlocked something that when I often read the book of Ecclesiastes, yes, it was a very motivational book to have me focus my, my, my heart, my attention to the things that are above and other things that are below. But as you just so beautifully uh, taught us today, Sister Krista, just that word to say Solomon was, was, was giving an observation as to uh, some of the things that repetitively happen on the earth. And, and to a degree, when we look at that, um, we fail to realize that, yes, though there may be observable truth, but there is just something greater that if we want to find meaning and the answers to life, we must look above the sun where God dwells. Amen. And that to me unlocked a lot of things because when I would read the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, it, it, it will be, okay, yeah, these things, these things that are being said, you know, good. It sounds right, but where's the answer? Should I just enjoy life? Is that where the buck stops? But when you really, and thinking about it metaphorically, you know, it, it, we live in a circular world. The world itself is a, is a circle. And if we seek solutions of the world, it'll only bring us back to the same problem that we had without real solutions. But when we look above the, the sun, it really makes a big difference. And that to me unlocked just so much more about the book of Ecclesiastes. And I can honestly say I'm leaving today uh, uh, satisfied and with, with a way forward on how to read that particular book. Because truthfully, 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 um, we have repeated a lot of mistakes, uh, um, uh, historical mistakes that we have, we, we have observed in the past. I ask myself, okay, why is it that we repeat this mistake? It's because we are not looking above the sun. We are not looking above the sun for the answers. We are not looking to Christ for the answers. Who gives us the solutions to the problems that we have in our world today? But rather, we just we just keep going. Is it that there aren't wise people who can counsel us as to what to do and what not to do on the earth? It's not that. It's that oftentimes we think we know better than each other, and then we fall into the same pit, repeating the same mistakes, and the solution is look above the sun. We shouldn't look for each other for solutions. We should look up to the Father 
for solutions. And that's where we have meaningful, meaningful, meaningful results, results that are everlasting. And I'll, you know, I'm just, I'm just so grateful. Literally, that one thing right there changed the whole book of Ecclesiastes for me. Really. Amen. Thank you so much, Sister Krista. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. Chantel. We give glory to God. I've just praised the Lord for the wisdom that he's given each of us and the way that you taught this. It was everything, everything, everything that I had hoped for. It was so encouraging to me. Um, I love the conviction of the Holy Spirit because I want the truth. I eat his word and just explaining it because there were so many things in Ecclesiastes that I remember reading thinking, well, I don't, that doesn't sound very good. And then, you know, you get to the end. Well, it's all about fearing the Lord and keep, and then I thought, okay, yeah, that's it. So I'm just so grateful. Um, one thing that I do every day is I say, Lord Jesus, lead the way. And just a couple of days ago, I had said that and I was a little overwhelmed. I'm a caregiver for my mother. And sometimes I get a little overwhelmed, but he's giving me joy and I praise him for everything. And I wasn't five minutes in the grocery store and a young man walked up to me and he said, ma'am, can you help me? And I said, we'll see. And he goes, well, will you buy this from me? It's, it's for school. And it was some coupons. And I said, how much is it? And he said, $25. And I said, wow. Huh. And I'm thinking of the groceries too. And I said, okay, tell, let's look on the back, look at it. And I just looked at him and I said, if I have it, I'll give it to you. And out of my mouth, I said, do you know who Jesus Christ is? And he just stared at me. And then we had church in the grocery store and it was so beautiful. And I just opened up my phone and I said, I just want to get the words of God right. I said, so bear with me. I'm sure you don't want to hear, hear and listen to all this, but I have to tell you, uh, we're in the days, and, and I have to tell you this. And this young boy, high school boy said, I have all the time in the world. <laughs> that actually made me nervous because I was like, oh, wow. Well, there's a lot I got to tell you then. So anyway, um, it was beautiful. And at the end, um, you know, I, his name is Will. And at the end, uh, I believe the Lord will soften his heart. And I just, I told him, I said, you know, it's free will. And I said, but Will, I want to apologize for us Christians that have been bad examples. Um, God is love, but he is holy. And there are standards and there is a narrow road and it is difficult, Will, but it is beautiful when it's with him. Um, so, you know, I did my best and I'm willing, but I just praise the Lord for this teaching and for the body of Christ. Um, just hallelujah. Thank you, my brothers and sisters. Hallelujah. I love that testimony. Praise the Lord. God bless Will. Thank you for sharing that, Chantel. Well, praise the Lord. I think we've had another full and rich um, time with the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Jesus. And so, um, Terrence, would you close us out in prayer? Amen. Praise the Lord. With pleasure. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Yes, Father. Oh, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Father, we thank you because it is your word that unites us all. 
we come together in your name to exalt your name, O Lord, to hear from you, O Lord, to feed uh, uh, of this bread on the table. And Lord Jesus, you remind us every day that you are the bread of life. And so, Father, as we have come on this tour of truth, sitting on your table, we thank you that you have fed us that which is eternal, manna from heaven, that which is spiritual. So, Father, we just want to say thank you this evening. Thank you for your servant, Sister Krista, who heed your voice to bring us this word today that has so opened our hearts and our minds to have more understanding, O oh God. For, Lord, the entrance of your word bring us forth light and understanding to the simple. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have brought forth understanding today by your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, Lord God, Lord, we will be filled again to go out into the world proclaiming your good name. Lord, living according to your word so that people will know that there is a God who lives and that there is only one true living God, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, what Father, we just want to thank you this evening and we bless your holy name, Abba, Father. And we pray that as we continue to abide in your word, O oh Lord, Lord, that you would reveal to us great and mighty things, O oh Lord, that would be of, 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 of help to us, that as we walk on the face of this earth, Lord, we will learn to seek your will concerning every aspect of our lives, O oh God, that you might receive the glory. I pray for a greater anointing on Sister Krista, Pastor Jeb, Pastor Sylvia, and all those whom you have chosen to facilitate this Bible study sessions on Mondays. And Father, I also pray, Lord God, that as we come in great numbers, Father, when we meet on Wednesdays, uh, four times a day, Lord, that numbers will increase, that we will join together, not only in study, but in praying and seeking your face, oh, Father. And I pray these things, oh, Lord, that, Father God, the, your will and your purposes for our family, the land, for Israel, and for everything that you have placed into our hearts may come to pass, oh, Father, that you might be glorified in all things, oh, Lord. Thank you, Father. Until we meet again, I pray, Lord God, that you will protect us, guide us, lead us, O oh Father, and preserve us, O oh Lord, that we might come once again and delight in your holy presence. And all these things we pray in Jesus' mighty name and with thanksgiving. Amen. 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 Love you all. So God bless you. Amen. Look forward to seeing you if you're able to join us Wednesday, four times for prayer, Eastern time, 7 a.m., 11 a.m., 7 p.m., and 11, oh, I'm sorry, 7 a.m., 12 noon, 7 p.m., and 11 p.m. Hallelujah. <laughs> we'll see you all soon. Shalom. Uh, shalom. 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 Shal